Let's take a moment and pray for God's Word before we open it together. Father, we are in need this morning. We are in need of not just physical food, but we are in need of spiritual food for our souls. So we pray that You would bless us this morning with the bread of life. That we would thirst from the everlasting waters. That we would find that You are nourishing and feeding us. Would You help us to be like beggars who are crying out and with famished souls asking for You just to give us a morsel? Surely we don't know how famished our souls are. If we did, surely we would cry out more readily for that bread of heaven. But we cry out with all that we do know this morning and pray that You would dispense Your grace to us, that You would feed us, nourish our souls, lift us up on high to where we may see You in the person of Christ. And help us to know that we have been fed by you this morning and return to you with thanksgiving. We pray this in the strong name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we go through the book of Hebrews here, we are going to see that there are five warning passages, and this is the first of those warning passages. These are real warnings. These are warnings that we need to heed, but as we will discuss in more detail as we get into some of these stronger sections of Hebrews, the Scriptures are clear that the Christian is eternally secure in Christ. If you have true faith in Christ, you will persevere to the end. Why? Because Christ has us. Christ has you if your faith is truly in Him. Jesus said, I know my own and my own know me, even as I know the Father and the Father knows me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He could not be more clear. 
If your faith is truly in Christ, you cannot be lost. He holds you. But it's also clear that you and I are to heed these warnings. We are to make sure that we continue to pursue Christ even as we trust Him to hold us because those who know Christ persevere in Christ. And so these warnings are very real. They are a wake-up call not to take things for granted, not to treat things as casual, but rather to continue to pursue Christ. To continue to seek after Him. None of us, not me, not you, are beyond these warnings. And here we have our very first warning in this book of Hebrews. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's the warning. That's the exhortation. The word drift there is a maritime word and it refers to a boat that has been taken away from its moorings. It has been taken off course. It's floating away from its intended destination. The word for pay attention, it's in the present tense in the Greek there, and so it has the idea of something that is to be continual. It never stops. You are to pay attention and keep paying attention. Keep on, keep on paying attention so you don't drift. That is, he's saying to those who have confessed Christ, it's essential that we not drift from Christ, but we continue, continue to continue, to continue to be anchored in Christ. C.S. Lewis has, um, I found, been quoted in almost every modern day commentator who is commenting upon this passage because He probably said it as well or better than anyone when he wrote in Mere Christianity. He said this, he said, we have to be continually reminded of what we believe. If you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift? away. And I would say by my experience as a pastor who has pastored now over the course of my pastorate thousands of people, that there's not even a comparison. By far and away, those who once professed faith in Christ and then wandered away from Christ and are now denying Christ. Almost to a person, they simply just drifted away. Just little by little, their affections were no longer quite as hot for Christ. Just a little lukewarm, and then eventually cold. This is my experience. I remember being in college and so many fellow college students, when I came to Saving Faith in college my freshman year, there were so many that were alongside of me and I counted as a brother or sister in Christ and they 
seem to have incredible zeal for Christ. Passion for Christ. And now I look at them decades later and they no longer claim Christ. I was actually led this weekend to one of them to their website. They have a business. It was a dear friend of mine who confessed Christ with me, but now runs an entire business around discovering each person's individual truth. And this person helps them find their individual truth by, quote, searching for a word within themselves. This was a friend who I went to church with, who we would witness to people with, who believed that Truth was not found inside, but was found outside of us by looking at the sovereign God of heaven and earth. And now is running a business. Not pointing people outside of themselves to find truth, but helping them each discover their own personal truth by how? By looking in the darkness within. What a dead and foolish road. It's nonsense. It's a hopeless, dead-end journey. On the website, this person says, I will help you find your one word within that becomes your true north star. I've seen it with members of every congregation I've served, including this one. Just a little drift, day after day, month after month, becomes a life off its eternal course. So the writer of Hebrews is saying to you, 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 and me, be warned. Be warned. He provides a well-known biblical argument. He uses what we often will we'll see at Various times throughout the Scriptures, an argument that's called from the lesser to the greater. He's going to argue from the lesser thing to the greater thing. He begins with the lesser. Angels declared a message. As we saw last week, these angels declared a message. What was that message? It was the law that was given to the nation of Israel. And he's saying that law, it was reliable. It was true. It could be trusted. And you knew it could be trusted. You knew it was true because angels declared it. And he says, every breaking of that law resulted in retribution. Quote, as the writer says, that's the lesser. His question then is this, how much greater is the condemnation if we neglect this great salvation? What great salvation? The message of Christ. If that lesser incurred judgment, How much more will be the judgment for this greater salvation if we neglect it? And now why is the gospel greater? That's a good question. Because this great salvation, this gospel, he argues, was not declared by angels, but it was declared by even greater and more numerous witnesses. And he's going to give us four. Four witnesses. The first witness of this greater salvation is the very Son of God. Christ the Lord declared the Gospel. 
And how much more reliable is this word than that which was given by angels? He said to come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. He lived for sinners. He was beaten and he was bruised and he was subjected to a trial and he was eventually hung upon the cross where he bore the very wrath of his Father and he died an atoning death for sinners. And he was buried for sinners. And He was raised on the third day and He ascended to the right hand of the Father for sinners. He declared this Gospel truth, this great salvation with His mouth. And He declared it with His life. That's the first witness. The second, we also have the words of other witnesses, eyewitnesses, or if you... Well, bear with me making something up. Ear witnesses uh, here that he is citing. Those who heard Christ even as they saw Him. He says in verse 3, and it was attested to you by those who heard. Luke will go out of the way in his Gospel at the very beginning when he's writing to Theophilus. He will say, look, I went around and I interviewed all kinds of eyewitnesses. People that had heard and seen Jesus. And he said, I sought to put together an orderly account so that you would know who this Jesus was and what he had done. Eyewitnesses. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 will say this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. He's making it clear. This Gospel that I received, this great salvation that I'm telling you about, there are all kinds of us that witnessed it. In fact, there are 500 that He appeared to at what? more than one time, and most of them are still alive. What's He doing? He's saying, I'm challenging you. Go ask Him if you want to. Eyewitnesses. let alone the apostles themselves. They were witnesses to this gospel truth. You think about the 11 remaining disciples. They saw Christ. They heard Christ. And then they denied Christ. And yet all of them will go out preaching Christ. They fearfully abandoned Him when He was put on trial. And they fearfully abandoned Him when He was crucified upon that cross. They all abandoned Him. And yet each of them become witnesses testifying to the truth of Christ later. Why the change? Why do they change from those that had abandoned Him in fear and now they're proclaiming Him? You say, well... The they must have gained something from it. Yet not one of them became rich. Not one of them gained status. Not one of them garnered possessions. Not one of them will be celebrated in their lifetime. 
All of them, all of them, with the exception of the Apostle John, will be killed for their testimony regarding this great salvation in Christ Jesus. Why this abrupt change in their behavior? Truly, from a human perspective, an earthly perspective, they lost everything and they gained nothing. Why did they change? Because they heard Him. And because they saw Him raised from the grave. And so they witnessed about Him. They had to tell others. Third, the writer says God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles when the apostles went out with this great news of salvation in Christ Jesus. God attested to them just like He attested to Jesus' words when Jesus went out. You remember Peter on that day at Pentecost, he's preaching to all the Jews that are gathered there, and he will say these words, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. It is God the Father was attesting to them that when Jesus changed the water into wine, when He walked upon the sea, when He healed the leper, when He even raised Lazarus from the grave, it was a loud thundering from heaven by these miracles that what My Son is saying is true. It's true. And so He did the same for the apostles. The healing of the lame beggar in Acts 3. The signs and wonders in Acts 5. The healings in Acts 8. Dorcas being raised to life in Acts 9. And on we can go. Each miracle lines up, if you will, as a witness after witness before the tribunals of our minds saying over and over and over again, this great salvation you are hearing is true. It's true. God the Father witnesses to its truthfulness. Fourth, he says in verse 4, the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will also serve as witnesses. Jesus has testified. The Son has testified. The Father has testified. And now the Spirit, by the gifts that He has given to the body of Christ, testifies that this is true. Every Christian is gifted by the Holy Spirit. When you come to saving faith in Christ, you are gifted with gifts by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the body. And so whether it is preaching, or whether it is teaching, or whether it is administration, or helps, or mercy, or faith, or prayer, or exhortation, or service, whatever those gifts are, and we could go on, each of them are a testimony from the Holy Spirit to each of us that this is true. So the writer is bringing all of these witnesses to bear so that you and I recognize the great, great danger of drifting from this truth. 
You see, if we drift from this truth, then we're counting the witness of the Spirit, the witness of the apostles, the witness of Jesus' generation, the witness of the Father, and ultimately the witness of Christ Himself as unreliable. We're saying it's not trustworthy. And he's saying, look, not trusting the reliableness of the testimony of the angels was worthy of retribution. How much more so if you deny this witness? And thus the admonition. We must, he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. I want to close with just warning you about three of the most common drifting dangers I've observed. These aren't the only ones. There are others. But at least from my perspective, my vantage point, pastoring people over the years, these are the three that are most common. First, You and I are in danger of drifting when we are distracted. When we're distracted. Demas is, of course, example A in the Scriptures. Demas, a man who Paul calls a fellow worker in the ministry of the Gospel in Colossians and Philemon. He is part of the inner circle. He was clearly passionate about Gospel ministry. He was out with Paul of all people ministering. And yet Paul will say, And 2 Timothy, Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What happened? Did Demas just wake up one day and all of a sudden decide, I'm just done with Christ? I seriously doubt it. It's just a little bit, a small movement in his affections over time, more and more. It just goes from passionate to lukewarm, eventually to cold and dead. So how do we combat distraction? We live a life of focus. Focus avoids distraction. It's not a platitude to remind one another to keep our eyes on Jesus be distracted. Know what you're looking for. I only thought about this this morning. I was recalling the story to a couple of our elders. I thought, oh, the perfect illustration. Uh, You might have seen it this week. I had seen it before and it's making its rounds again this week after Queen Elizabeth died, but were her bodyguard is recounting a story of her. He tells a story from years ago where he and the queen were out hiking in the mountains of Scotland and uh, there were two Americans that stumbled across their path and he said the two Americans did not recognize her and started conversing with them and were asking different questions, and the Americans, you know, started telling them where they were from in the states. And he said, "I could see it coming." He said, "One of the Americans said, so where do you live?'" And the Queen said, "Well, I spend most of my time in London, but my family also has a house up here in Scotland." And 
And the, one of the Americans said, well, how long have you been coming up here to Scotland? And she said, oh, since I was a small child. And one of the Americans said, well, I'm told the Queen has a place that's up near here. And the bodyguard said, I could see it coming. And the American said, have you ever been introduced to the Queen? And the Queen said, I haven't been introduced to her per se, but he has, pointing to her <laughs> bodyguard. And uh, the Americans got very excited and said well, to the bodyguard, what is she like? And he said, well, sometimes she's cantankerous, but she has a great sense of humor. Uh, so after they conversed for a while, the Americans said, can we get our picture taken with you? And they get the camera to the queen and ask to pose with the bodyguard. And so she takes their picture and the bodyguard then hands the camera, takes the camera from her and says, I think I should also take your picture with her. And they say, oh, great, that would be great. So they take a picture and then they're walking away. And the queen said to the bodyguard, I wish I could be a fly on the wall when they get back to America and show their pictures to their friends. Just distracted, didn't, didn't know what they were looking for, and didn't know it when they had seen it. They would be looking for Christ, focused on Christ, looking for Christ everywhere you can find Him. He's the morning star, as the Scriptures say. And anything else before your eyes is a distraction. Notice his emphasis in this passage. It's upon the word that we receive. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. That can't be escaped. So let's be, let's be brass tacks practical here. If you are not in the word and prayer every day, you're drifting. That's where you see Christ. You need to be in the Word every day. It's in the Word that He meets with us. It's not an accident that by my experience, almost every single person that I've approached and I pursue people that have left the church, they, you know, they begin missing once a month and then they begin missing twice a month and then they begin making it once every couple of months and then all of a sudden they're not here for a quarter and they're just drifting away and I will approach them and if they will allow me, I'll sit down with them. And I always ask the same question. When they say, you know what, I just don't know that I actually believe in Christ anymore. You know what, I don't believe in Christ anymore. I say, tell me, how long ago was it that you stopped reading the Bible and praying? And it's always months and months and months before they drift. It is not legalism to maintain a daily quiet time. It's life. It's not just old-time religion that says we need to be a people of the Word and prayer. It's all-time religion. It is your religion till the day that Christ comes back. And when He comes back, do you know what you will do in eternity? You will be conversing with Him in prayer and you will be caught up with His Word as you are looking upon Him. It's the life of the Christian. 
We need to continually be looking to Christ and you meet Christ by His means in His Word and prayer. Be focused. Second, you and I are in danger of drifting when we are marked by formality. It's easy to begin going through the motions as a Christian, so simply Bible reading and prayer doesn't correct all. We aren't simply seeking to check a box. So how do we combat this danger of formality? Well, we live a life of engagement. You and I must engage. Your mind is to be engaged. Know what you believe and why you believe it. You have to keep seeking to grow in your understanding of Christ and what the Scriptures teach of this great salvation. You have to keep growing in it. Reading and reading and growing and seeking to understanding. Plumbing the depths. You never graduate from the school of Christ. Never. You'll be learning for all of eternity in the school of Christ. You can't ever think you've arrived. And so you seek to grow in your understanding. What is it that I actually believe? And why is it that I believe that? You can never plumb the depths. But it's not enough just to stay with the mind. These truths have to grip your heart. Affections have to be stirred. You delight in this Christ. It's often been said in church history the furthest distance in the universe is between the mind and the heart. Get what is here, here. That's to be your continual and my continual pursuit. Jesus say in Matthew 15 about the Pharisees, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We can sing these songs, we can pray these prayers, we can listen to these sermons, this sermon even now, we can serve in the nursery, we can even share the gospel with people and still be drifting away from Christ. So do you check to see if your heart is regularly engaged? You check. To use this maritime analogy, imagine you were on a cruise ship, family decided to go on a cruise, and you're on a cruise ship, and the cruise ship goes down, and you find yourself in the water, and you find a raft, and you get yourself on that raft. And then you look 50 yards out, and there's your family. You see your spouse, your children, your brother, your sister, your parents, they're 50 yards out, and all of a sudden you realize the current is taking you and that raft away from all that you love and all that you hold dear. What would you do? You'd put that oar in the water and you would start paddling as hard as you can. And while you're paddling as hard as you can, you would be offering up every prayer above saying, Lord Jesus, help me to get there. 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 He's to be your greatest love. When you and I find ourselves drifting, we are to make every effort. And we are to offer 
every prayer. Stop me from drifting. I've often thought about that passage in Genesis where Jacob is at Penuel and there in the night he is wrestling with God. And he refuses to let God go unless he blesses him. I've done this. My heart is just dry and I feel like there is nothing I am passionate about in regards to Christ. And I am on my knees and pleading with Him and praying, just give me some blessing that I might delight in Christ some way. I will not let you go until you bless me. You pray that way. You labor that way. It leads to the last this morning, the danger of being unintentional. Christian life is one of intentionality. Listen to Paul in 1 Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Pursue, fight, labor, strive. You have these words over and over throughout the New Testament. Words that are spoken about the Christian life. There's effort. There's a faulty view of the Christian life that believes that that being unstructured and unplanned is equal to godliness. That somehow spontaneity trumps structure. But our God is a God of order. Now we already address formality. That's a current that can lead us adrift and can lead us away from Christ. But so can living unintentionally. It seems like there are a lot of us that are living unintentionally. You and I need waymarks, little points along the journey that we just know that, ah, I'm still on the path. I'm still flowing in the right direction. I haven't drifted too far off course. You set goals for your spiritual life, you have check in points. Yearly, quarterly, monthly. This is supposed to be one weekly. It's a good counter to drifting. Actual goals that you set before yourself. I I want to memorize these verses. I want to share the gospel with this many people this week. I want to put to death this sin. I want to grow in this fruit of the Spirit. I want to extend hospitality to this many families over this semester. I want to read through the Bible this year. Now, it can be formalism. It can be legalism. But it can also be the means by which you stay on course. It's just how you approach it. It's just how your heart is engaged with it. So much 
of drifting is combated by living intentionally. And let me just say this, because he highlights it here in the text in closing, that much of that intentional living is living a life for others in the body. He says, the gifts of the Spirit testify to us. This is one of the reasons that it's so important that you are here. You have to be here. You have to be engaged with the people that are here. Now listen, if you can't engage with the people at University Reformed Church, if you can't get engaged here, where it's life on life, where we're bringing our gifts to bear upon one another, if you can't do that, then leave and find a church where the Bible is proclaimed and you can engage. Because you need it. I've said this to you before, I'll say it again. We've been saved not only unto God, but we've been saved unto one another. We need each other. We're here. The person with the gift of prayer prays. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is as that person with the gift of prayer prays, we are testified to once again that this is true. That when the person with the gift of hospitality greets us as we walk through the door or invites us over to their house for lunch and we sup with them and we eat with them and we fellowship with them, as they bear that gift of hospitality upon our soul, we hear God declare this is true. When you're out here in the hallways and you're talking with people afterwards and it's a person that has the gift of faith and you can just sense it and feel it by the way that they talk and they speak and they encourage you. God is testifying to you that this is true. When the person with the gift of preaching stands up here and proclaims to you, it's not just the Word that is going out, but the Spirit, by the gift that He has given that man, is testifying to you that this is true. God is saying over and over and over by the gifts that He has given to us for one another, He is declaring with a loud voice, this you must continue to believe because it is true. Which means you have to engage other people. You have to engage people for the good of your own soul. And we often sing that hymn about the, the piece of coal that's removed from the fire and it's set on the hearth. And we sing, ah, it burns for some time, but eventually it loses its warmth. I've watched this. You've watched this. Watch someone that is here week in and week out and they're engaged and then all of a sudden you watch them kind of retreat into the background. They're no longer serving. And then a sudden, ah, they miss a Sunday a month. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, they're missing a Sunday every six weeks. And then you realize, oh, they are missing every couple of months. And they're gone. You have to engage. Engage one another. And this is what I find so incredibly fascinating and interesting to me is that God has orchestrated so that that when we are focused on others, serving others, looking outside what I need, what I want, what this church or person or ministry can do for me, that's then when my faith and my soul are actually encouraged 
and I'm prevented and corrected from drifting. So fascinating. It's almost like he orchestrates this. Been given a great salvation. Great salvation. But you have a great Christ. He has testified to it through his own lips, through his life. The Father has testified to it. The Holy Spirit has testified to it. The apostles have testified to it. Common lay people who are eyewitnesses have testified to it. And so he says to you and I, we must pay closer attention to it. Lest we drift away from it. Must. Father, we are thankful for so great a salvation. We're thankful for the testimony that you have given us so that we need not doubt. Truly, we will accept things on the evidence of two or more witnesses, and here we have the evidence and the witness of a father who cannot lie, a son who is perfect, and a spirit who indwells us. Apostles who gave their lives. How could we ever doubt so great a salvation? Grant us the grace to cling to it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lest we drift. We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen.